0: Welcome to Vancouver Consumer on a sunny Saturday afternoon. I'm Sterling Fox, and in just a few moments, we'll help celebrate this weekend's Vancouver International Wine Festival with one of our own Cedar Creek Estate Winery's winemaker, Taylor Whalen. We'll join us to talk about all things wine, both here in B.C. and around the world. And, of course, take your calls, too. In our second hour today, we'll keep our phone lines wide open as automotive journalist Jeremy Cato returns with a look at 2020's safest cars... The e-cars, and much more. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week. It was budget week in two jurisdictions this week, and the approach couldn't have been more different. Next door in Alberta, the government of Jason Kenney put a very conservative budget before Albertans, with few spending promises, but also with fewer hard cuts than had been expected. It was a surprisingly soft budget. On Wednesday, the government of Hong Kong put forward its budget, and it was about as dramatically different From Alberta, as can be imagined. In a city state which relies heavily on tourism and consumer spending, the entire economy is in shambles. First, there were weeks of unrest and protest which ground the economy to a halt. Then came the coronavirus, which has seen the city literally cut off from the world. So, the Hong Kong budget this week contained cash 10,000 Hong Kong dollars, which were works out to about 1,300 Canadian dollars given to any resident over 18. That's about 7 million people who will benefit from the program. Of course, it means trouble for the finance department. Hong Kong now has its first deficit in 15 years. But this is an important move to directly stimulate the economy with cold, hard cash money. This, combined with cuts to income taxes, is hoped will kickstart start rather economic activity. We shall see, and we wish them luck. So what does this tell us about economic expectations for Canada in the days ahead? Lots of surveys of economists and finance industry types going on, and they all seem to be able to agree on a few points. Point one, 82% of them think the Bank of Canada will hold interest rates steady at 1.75% this coming Wednesday, March 4th. But... of them think the next rate move, which is coming up on April 4th, will be down. Only half of them think the bank should cut the rate, but 100% of money biz types interviewed said the coronavirus will affect the Canadian economy in some way. Bottom line, expect an interest rate cut. In early April. Will this affect real estate? (laughs) You bet. If you're an investor in Beyond Meat or one of its many competitors, you likely already know two more huge chains are getting into the meat alternative game soon. Starbucks said on Wednesday its Canadian stores will start selling a Beyond Meat plant based breakfast sandwich next week, the first time the world's biggest coffee chain will offer an imitation meat product. Starbucks says its Beyond Meat sandwich with cheddar cheese and eggs will be available at nearly 1,200 coffee shops across Canada next week, starting on Tuesday the 3rd. Wendy's has now joined the parade. Now available across Canada, the Plantiful is the fast food joint's newest menu option, and it comes in the form of a plant-based burger. The big difference here is it's not a Beyond Meat product or one of its competitors. It's an in-house product developed by Wendy's. It's also Round And if you know Wendy's and their square burger patties, that's a big deal. Even though plant-based alternatives don't always work, as was the case with recent experiments at Tim Hortons, they sure are coming on strong for food lovers and investors alike those are a few of the week's top consumer stories we'll look at lots more as the show goes forward but coming right up we join in the fun and festivities at the 2020 vancouver international wine festival with the top guy from cedar creek estates winery in the okanagan taylor whalen coming right up on vancouver consumer right here on cknw Enjoying the sunshine on a Saturday afternoon, we sure are. Hmm, it's great stuff. I'm Sterling Fox. Welcome back to the program. It's 2.13, and it's a pleasure to jump in on the fun and the frivolity at the 2020 edition of the Vancouver International Wine Festival. And here to share with some of it is the winemaker from Cedar Creek Estates Winery in Kelowna. It's a real pleasure to welcome Taylor Whalen to Vancouver Consumer. Hi, Hi, Taylor. Hi, Sterling. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming in. It's a, it's a busy weekend for a guy like you at the, at the winery, but uh, thank you for making time for us. You're a BC guy, born on the island, went to school at UBC to become a fisheries science a
1: scientist. What the heck happened? Well, Campbell River, as you may or may not know, is the salmon capital Absolutely. of the world. Absolutely. So I grew up in, in that environment, had a passion for uh, everything marine. Mm-hmm. Ended up going to school for it, graduating with it. Worked in fishery science for a couple of years. And um, what they don't tell you when you're going to school is that you're not going to get to be David Attenborough right away. Uh You don't get to go out on the Zodiac and go crashing around looking for blue whales. You get to sit at a computer and input numbers and do statistics. Uh Exciting stuff by the sounds of it. it. Yeah, (laughs) exactly.
0: So how did you make the transition, though? From How did you go from marine biology to
1: Wine making. Absolutely, yes. That's quite a leap. It, it's a bit of a leap, yeah, although not quite as far as you'd think. So I grew up in uh, on the North Island. My parents had a big chunk of property, produced a lot of their own food themselves, and there was always a big uh, culture surrounding having friends over, doing dinners and wines that were associated with those dinners. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I grew up with it, and... It's not something you think about when you're a teenager, but when I moved out, I started to cook for myself and buy wines, and then I started volunteering at a couple of small wineries on Vancouver Island. Um, and when I realized that fisheries was not the thing for me, I, I threw caution to the wind and decided I'm going to try this this wine thing. I, I really enjoy it as a lifestyle. And the further I got into it, the more I realized, you know, what my making mostly is is botany and microbiology and biochemistry. Mm-hmm and hey i already had a little bit of that under my belt so absolutely with your with your with your marine biological credentials you yeah. could uh, use a
0: lot of that to background and apply it in a different area altogether so what sort of program does one enter and graduate from in order to become a certified winemaker
1: yeah absolutely so for canadians we're always looking for cool climate winemaking mm-hmm. and viticulture programs And uh, the one that we're all focused on in Canada is the one at Brock University. It's called the Cool Climate Enology and Viticulture Institute. Uh, Brock University is located in St. Catharines in Niagara, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people don't know out here, but has a a little bit bigger industry even than BC does in terms of grape growing and winemaking. So I moved out there, spent a couple of years out there doing a postgraduate degree in, in viticulture and winemaking. And so would you do practicum on the ground work com- in terms of completing your
0: academic program at local wineries in Niagara area?
1: Yeah, they have a co-op program. So you have to spend some time in vineyard, some time in winery, and then a little bit of time in business as well. All right. Uh, and that gets you a pretty well-rounded look at the industry at large and helps people determine what direction they want to go in as well, because... A lot of people think that winemaking and viticulture is the big part of the wine industry, but actually there's a lot of marketing, a lot of sales, and a lot of business involved in it as well. So there's a lot of different directions you can go in. Mm -hmm.
0: So why didn't you stay in Niagara? There you were, comfortably ensconced in southern Ontario, uh, enjoying the Brock University culture. It's a great school, Uh, and uh, small, but great, and uh, lots of wineries, uh,
1: probably wanted to snap you right up after you finished the program. Why'd you come back home? Yeah, I have to be careful with this answer because my wife's from Ontario. <laughs> but, um, so
0: am I originally, you know, but yeah, I've been here quite a while. Yeah,
1: living close to the QEW and being part of the the Golden Horseshoe was not Bit so... A busy, huh? It's very busy for a guy who's from a town of 30,000 people. <laughs> um, so I always knew I wanted to come back to BC. I like the lifestyle here. Um, and I knew that there was a lot of opportunity in BC for the wine industry to continue to develop. And I wanted mm. to be a part of that. So... Uh, I bounced around a little bit, worked some harvests overseas, but I knew that when I came back full-time, I wanted to be back in the Okanagan.
0: But the, you, the the overseas component in this discussion is interesting because it's part of the resume. It's part, Taylor, of why you are who you are now, because you have gone to Australia and to New Zealand and Tasmania and learned winemaking on the ground on the other side of the planet. Yep. Uh, are their techniques and so on much different from ours, or is it just another place on the earth where they do wine-like? Like pretty much everywhere else, there's techniques that
1: are different, and there's a there's a um, maturity to the industries that we don't quite have, or that we're just beginning to develop. If if you take my drift, like Australia has been growing grapes for 150 years, sure. they're producing quality wine there for a hundred years. Um, the industry is much older and more mature, and so there's ideas and techniques and a seriousness to it that is just only kind of starting to come out now in, in the Canadian industry. You know, our vineyards are the oldest ones Are or- 25, 30, 35 years old, maybe. So, Are there some
0: older in Niagara or is the Okanagan some of the oldest growing vines in the country?
1: There's a few older, but once you get past the 70s, most of what you find are like Concord family grapes. Like they're more eating table grapes or juice grapes. They're not necessarily wine grapes. So when people started to get serious about wine in the 70s, they actually started to plant things like Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Riesling. And those are really the oldest plantings of vinifera, we call them. Uh, vines in in canada
0: when did you start with cedar creek your current position i know you've worked your way up through the ranks but what when did you go to this company and why
1: i started in 2011 and uh i i wanted to be at cedar creek a because they're in the okanagan b they had a a very good name in the okanagan industry they had been named canadian winery of the year twice by uh, wine line or the canadian wine awards um and they were located in Kelowna wanted to stay in the North Okanagan because right. the varieties that are found in the North Okanagan like Riesling and Pinot, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris are the ones that I'm most passionate about. So
0: and so when you started, and you had you had some uh, some out-of-country experience down under, you had a marine biology degree, and now you had your postgraduate degree in winemaking from Ontario. And so you take all this nicely bundled resume
1: to the folks at Cedar Creek, and they say, sure, okay, we'll start you here. Where did you start? Uh, cellar Master is the title uh, that I was given. And Cellar Master, you can think of it as kind of a, a foreman job. So your, your job as a Cellar Master is to kind of receive the work from the winemakers. Uh, So the winemakers are the ones who kind of create the work. Uh, Are we going to empty barrels today? Are we going to fill barrels today? Are we pressing grapes? And all of the procedures that go with that, that's given to the cellar master. And then he or she goes into the cellar, distributes the work and makes sure it gets done to a certain quality level, essentially. How many people would be on staff at a, at a, a winery the size of Cedar Creek? We have five full time people working in the cellars, but we're a pretty lean operation compared to some. I think um, for a winery of our size, you probably don't want to go below five people. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we have a couple of cellar hands. Uh, We have our cellar master. We have an assistant winemaker. And then myself as the winemaker.
0: And how many acres do you
1: have um, of vines? Yeah. So Cedar Creek. is situated right in the middle of one of the oldest vineyards in the Okanagan um, in Kelowna. So that's 50 acres of vines there in Kelowna. Okay. And then we source from about 100 or 125 uh, additional acres from up and down the Okanagan when we can. Our preference is for vineyards and uh, properties around Kelowna in the North Okanagan somewhere. But we also do take fruit from the south, all of our soy-use areas
0: so when you're, uh, you're trying, I'm, – I'm interested in this process of yeah. sourcing. So you, you take some of the grapes from your own 50 acres and you mix them or blend them, to use a proper word. You blend them with similar type grapes or um, uh, complementary grapes from small batches nearby. Is that
1: how it works? Yeah, it depends on the wine and the variety. There's a, to go along with um, winemaking and the varieties you're making, there's a philosophy as well. And I, I guess you could probably say the two main philosophies would be like the Bordelais, the people from Bordeaux, and they're big blenders. So they love blending. Okay. They, think, they think that a blend can always be superior to a single variety wine because you've got a number of different varieties or wines with different characters mm-hmm. that you can blend in at different percentages to balance your acid or soften your tannins or whatever else. Sure. And then there's the Burgundians who would be horrified if you bottled something that was more than a half an acre planting, right? Right, so right. they So their big thing I is, raised my hand for the Burgundy, That's that's where my vote would go. But that's just a school of thought, isn't it? Yeah, it is, absolutely, yeah. So Cedar Creek, being focused on Pinot Noir as our focused red, we do try and produce single vineyard and single block even, which is just a parcel out of a single vineyard. Okay. Uh, we try and produce wines as often as we can from those smaller batches. Uh, With the goal of showcasing older vines or really interesting soils or, you know, something very unique about the site. What's
0: the most popular
1: Cedar Creek wine these days? Uh, I mean, whites in the Okanagan. Pinot Gris still seems to be what a lot of people want to drink. But Sauvignon Blanc is closing in on that, I would say. Um, in terms of rosé, which everybody knows is a really hot ticket at the moment. Yeah. Uh, we produce a single block rosé from Cedar Creek, uh, our block one rosé, which is very, very popular. Most of it goes to our wine club and is sold on site. We can, we can, well, we can't keep it on the shelf for a whole season even. Really? And then in terms of reds, uh, Pinot Noir is where we see most of the growth. A lot of people are talking about Pinot in the North Okanagan and internationally, actually. And there's a lot of excitement around it. So that's, I think, where probably a lot of the focus is for reds.
0: Interesting stuff. So um, the, the idea that um, you can produce, when I, we first moved to British Columbia, it was in the uh, mid-70s. And we investigated, as best we could, uh, the local wine scene. And, of course, it was all coming out of Kelowna. Uh, And I must say there wasn't a lot to choose from in uh, 1974 when we moved here. Mm -hmm. The Reds were, I remember, something called Similkameen Superior. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was the first local wine that I had tried. It was a little rough around the edges, but, you know, you could tell they were trying.
1: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) We've
0: come a long way in a relatively short period of time. been here about 40 years and that's that's quite a, a, an enormous rate of progress within that for the wine industry which is not the fastest moving business on earth
1: no absolutely i mean when you when you consider it's taken europe from the time the romans had conquered europe 2000 years ago to now to perfect their wines and we've done most of that in 40 years. It's, uh, you can almost get whiplash experiencing how fast we've moved. But I think a lot of us are really proud of it, too. You know, everybody's working really hard to try and figure out what varieties work well in which sure. regions and what our soils are doing, interacting with our vines and what how that influences wine quality. So... Uh, yeah, it's been very fast. With it. It's because there's a lot of people who have put in a lot of work over the last 40 years to make it happen.
0: Yeah, I believe you. Um, wanted to ask you about prices because yeah. you just referenced uh, ancient European winemaking uh, cultures and uh, practices. <laughs> yes. Thousands of years old. Yeah. Uh, and it shows. So why then, when someone goes to a BC liquor store or a wine shop uh, to buy a nice bottle of wine, and I think I'm going to keep keep it local here, go for a nice VQA of my favorite whatever, why... Is it so much more expensive to buy a nice quality local wine than it is sometimes twice as much as its competitor from France or Italy or elsewhere?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Most of it is a matter of scale and efficiency. So the Okanagan is on global standards, a very small wine region. Yes. And most of our vineyards are quite isolated. Like most of our vineyards are planted on these little benches or little pockets in a corner of the valley that is maybe three acres, five acres, 10 acres. You can't automate that. You can't buy a machine harvester that can work efficiently in that area. You can't buy tractor implements that really are going to make sense from a capital perspective for such a small area. So when you break the vineyards up into all these little bits and pieces, all of a sudden, automating doesn't make sense anymore. Things have to be done by hand. Right. And handwork is more expensive. Mm. That's just the way it works. So you know, California, I've seen vineyards that are 1,000 acres, and they're almost exclusively worked by machines. There's no way we can do that. That's 10% of our entire acreage in the Okanagan is 1,000 acres. So there's no way we can automate like that. A. B is a lot of those regions are warmer than we are. I'm sure. And yeah. so they can afford to hang a little bit more crop. They can ripen a little bit more fruit than we can. So let's say California, they can hang uh, six tons per acre for Cabernet Sauvignon. We can hang three and get it right. Right. So okay. uh, already our costs are twice as high as theirs are because our cropping level is half as high. So it's a, it's a combination of the climate we're in and the geography we have and how it limits us and us being able to mechanize our industry.
0: Yeah, so it, it, just, uh, it, it must, because of the, the the geography of the Okanagan Valley, this remains a very human, labor-intensive industry as opposed to something you can run machines up and down over vast flatlands, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. I, ov- I often tease our viticulturists that we're going to replace them with a robot someday, and he gets pretty uptight about it. He <laughs> says, Taylor, you can't, even if you took all the people out and replace them with robots, your wine quality is going to go down because wine is about the interaction of people with the grapevines and the land. And it's something you can't really replace, even if you do mechanize. So,
0: The man who loves his job, he's Taylor Whalen, (laughs) winemaker at Cedar Creek's Estate Winery here in the the city this weekend to celebrate, of course, along with um, others from the industry, both here and around the world. It's the 2020 Vancouver International Wine Festival. Great to have Taylor with us. If you have any comments or questions, let's open up the phone lines. We're going to break for the news, and we'll take your calls afterwards. 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. Lots more Vancouver consumer coming right up welcome back to the show on this beautiful saturday afternoon the last day of february leap year 2020 the white caps are playing tonight if you're a leap years baby you get free tickets to the game but you had to tell them you're a leap years baby a few days ago then you show up with your birth certificate today and they let you in for nothing uh taylor whalen is with us his vancouver international wine festival 2020 version mr whalen is the winemaker at cedar creek estate winery in Kelowna. uh here with us today to talk all things wine to take your questions and calls about wine or wine making 604-280-9898 the lines are wide open i wanted to ask you about corks versus screw tops because its the the wine presentation on the shelves has undergone some pretty dramatic changes taylor there was a time not too long ago when a screw top on a on the top of a wine bottle was pretty much a cue that this was less than top notch and you really might want to stay away from it that's completely changed when did that happen
1: well here in canada i think over the last 10 to 15 years, probably. Um, And it's pretty interesting. In the international market, there's countries that are still pretty far behind. The U.S. love their cork. France love their cork. Mm -hmm. You go somewhere like New Zealand or Australia, almost all the wines are under screw cap, including stuff that's $150, $200 a bottle. They've really made the transition fast, uh, and they're very happy about it. So for us, we're kind of slowly following in their footsteps, I would say. So 10 to 15 years ago, it really started to ramp up. Um, and we're seeing more and more wineries transition over to screw cap now.
0: Interesting. What percentage of Cedar Creek Estate wineries products are currently screw cap versus
1: cork? At the moment, we're about 90% screw cap, ah. uh, 10% cork. Uh, but I just got uh, approval this year to put 100% of our production under screw cap moving forward. So as of 2019, it's all going to be under a screw cap.
0: Interesting stuff. Is it less expensive from a production point of view to use screw caps versus a cork?
1: Yeah, it is. Um, corks are, let's say, a dollar to $1.50 each. Screw caps are more like $0.25 cents each. Oh, okay. Um, but that's not necessarily the reason we're going there. The reason we're going there is for consistency. So cork is a natural product. Uh each individual cork has a different consistency, right. holes through it, et cetera, et cetera. And some of them aren't even cork anymore either. They're made out of some synthetic material, right? That's right. So you can. Uh, I had a really interesting experience in Australia where a winemaker had brought a 12 bottle case of wine to a tasting. It was 12 bottles in a row that come off his bottling line that were bottled under cork. He opened every bottle. These are 10 year old wines. He opened every bottle. And it was almost like you were trying three or four completely different wines because there was so much variation due to cork in the wines. It was just different levels of oxygen getting into the wines or flavors coming out of the cork into the wines. So with screw cap, that's not an issue. Screw, Screw caps, as long as they're applied properly... The consistency is amazing, and that's why we're doing it at Cedar Creek. There's
0: a product I, I wanted to just ask you about because you're the wine guy. I saw it on one of those late-night infomercials on TV. It's for wine. It's for corked wine, and it looks like almost like a surgical needle. You put it into the bottle, insert it through the cork, so then you can pour a very thin uh, pour of wine out, then remove the needle, and ostensibly the cork reseals, and it's as good as new. Are you familiar with these products? Yeah, I have seen those, actually. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do they jeopardize the quality of the wine as much as uncorking it, pouring it out, and putting the cork in, putting the half bottle back on the shelf?
1: Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. There's no doubt about it. The nicer models on the market will actually inject an inert gas back into the bottle oh, as well. Oh, okay. So not only are you pulling a little bit of wine out and resealing the bottle, but you're not allowing air into the bottle, and air is the real spoiler for wine, so... With these uh, new tools, new generation of tools, you can. You can preserve a wine for several months, puncture the cork, take a small pour out of it, pull the tool out, the cork re-seals, and does. you can go back to the wine in a couple months, and it'll still be almost as uh, the same quality as when you first opened well,
0: it. Well, okay, I appreciate the reassurance, because I'm sitting there watching this stuff It's some, what, one o'clock in the morning, and this thing comes on, I'm going, oh, that can't be, oh, that couldn't possibly work. Yeah. Well, apparently it does. Better just finish the bottle you're working <laughs> on, yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, wanted to talk a little bit about uh, an article in today's Vancouver Sun, written by a guy you and I both know fairly well, Anthony Gismondi, yes. and he's talking about the wine business, of which you are a um, a certified card-carrying member, and he's saying things like wine uh, drinking trends are changing, and of course it's your job to know that, uh, and he's somewhat critical of some parts of the industry for being slow in the uptake. Now, you happen to work for a company that is owned by a corporation that has divisions that make sparkling canned wine-type and, and spirit-type drinks, so your company's already on the case. Uh, but it's not necessarily uh, industry-wide yet, is his point. Is it a slower
1: turnaround to get things done in the wine biz just because of the nature of the business? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can always go out and start your own seltzer company if you'd like, and that's a completely different question than whether you want to grow grapes and make wine, I would say. right? right? Seltzers are a very fast turnaround. You can bang them together in a week and get them into a can and send them out, whereas wine... Um, you got to plant the vineyard. You got to wait five years for the vines to be producing. You got to wait another 10 years for them to mature. And then you're a couple of years in the winery with the wine before it's released. Sure. So it's not, a, it's not necessarily a nimble industry in terms of the product. Stuff like marketing, innovation, packaging, that kind of thing is much easier for us. But in terms of raw product, it's it's not necessarily an industry that can turn on a dime and make really fast adjustments. Mm -hmm. That being said, we're making an effort. Cedar Creek has launched a uh, Charmat Method sparkling program, which is the way they produce Prosecco wines in Italy. So it's a little bit faster way of producing a sparkling wine. Uh, And we're now doing a decent volume of that with a variety called Muscat. And that kind of trends towards the same style as Prosecco. Like it's a soft, really accessible, fruity, fresh style of sparkling wine. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've seen really good success with that. So we're doing it where we can, um, but we're also trying to protect the tradition of the wine industry and the fact that to make a really high-quality product does take time. Right? Sure.
0: So. And I mentioned moments ago that your your company or the corporation that in, of which Cedar Creek Estate Winery is a, is a component. Tell us a little bit more about your company because the boss, the guy at the top, is best known for a product that is not at all wine-like. It's
1: Mike's Hard Lemonade, right? Same guy. It's the same guy, absolutely, yeah. I mean, Anthony, he's a very innovative businessman. Anthony Von Mendel? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. yep. So he's had pretty extraordinary success in in the drinks industry with uh, with Mike's Hard and a couple of other products. Um, I think the thing that's most inspiring about Anthony, though, is that his his passion is still high quality wine. Right. Um, it, it you know he's, he's got an income stream that's outside of the wine industry, um, still in drinks and beverage, but. Where his money and his time and his investment is going is right back to the Okanagan. I've had conversations with him saying, Anthony, why don't you buy a nice winery in Champagne or Bordeaux or Burgundy? And he just shrugs and says, I don't have any interest in that. I want to focus on the Okanagan. I think it has the most potential um, of any emerging wine region in the world to produce world-class wines. And that's where all his investment and that's where all his focus is going. And for us, that's a huge benefit because it allows us to gain the tools and the people with experience and and really really focus on producing higher and higher quality wine every year. Well,
0: you're lucky you work for a very profitable company so they're not dependent on Cedar Creek Estates for for survival or not. It's a division of a company that is quite diversified in the beverage industry and uh, therefore
1: each uh, outfit within the, the company has room to do its thing, right? That's correct, yeah. Although that being said, we still operate the wine business as a separate business, so there's accountability in all the wineries oh, to make sure. sure everybody hits budget and everybody's paying attention to the numbers. And we get to this time of year and people start to turn the screws a little bit just to make sure the numbers are all looking good. Um, but yeah, we are lucky in that respect. And that's one of the reasons I'm here I'm here is because I love that we get to hire the best people from around the world to bring them to work in our vineyards and our wineries. We get to purchase the best equipment that we can mm-hmm. to put in our wineries. And that there's always the the top question on everybody's mind in at Cedar Creek and in the Okanagan wine business is how can we make better wine? That's always the the final arbiter of decision making and process and everything is how can we make better wine? And that's a great way to work, you know, it's so, a, well, well my it shows. So, I mean, yeah.
0: look at, uh, I mean, within the, the roughly 40 years that I've been in this province, the, the rapid development of the industry within that really quite constricted times compared to the thousands of years, our European competitors and joy as an advantage over us that within that 35, 40 year time frame, BC's wine
1: industry has just come roaring along. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. as. uh The story of the Okanagan uh, wine industry is almost meteoric, um, and it shows. There's people from all over the place I had tasted with wine writers from Decanter and Wine Spectator magazine in Mm -hmm. the last two days. They're here tasting BC wines. They want to come and try Okanagan wines, Canadian wines, see what we're doing, get a feel for what's going on, maybe plan a trip to come back this summer and do a whole week in the Okanagan. These are the most prestigious wine publications in the world, and yeah. they're the best judges in the world. And when they're taking interest in our wines, it's it's flattering, but it also shows that we're headed in the right direction. And
0: How much um, of the wine or does the wine making business or industry contribute to the tourism dollar uh, value in the Okanagan on an annual basis? It must be huge. Wine tourism is a big deal.
1: It's huge. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, Sterling, I don't know the num- like flat numbers off the top of my head. Visitors. I mean, Cedar Creek alone, we have fifty thousand vis- unique visitors every year. I know some of the bigger wineries have in the hundreds of thousands of unique visitors. And when you think that Kelowna is only a town of a hundred thousand people, and sure, a lot of them don't drink wine. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to know that there's hundreds of thousands of people coming to the Okanagan every year to do not only wine tasting and buying, but skiing, uh, outdoor adventure, you know, vacation, relax by the lake, go see some of the parks. So. You combine this amazing kind of outdoor lifestyle with the culinary and the winemaking, and you've got a pretty great tourism destination. So you have
0: at Cedar Creek, you have a tasting room and you also have a restaurant. Now, is that seasonal
1: or is it open year round? Open year-round, yeah. We're close enough to Kelowna. We're large enough that we can maintain the tasting room year-round and the restaurant now as well. Like you said, we just opened a new restaurant. It's called Home Block Restaurant. Okay. Um, And the intention with that restaurant is to keep it open um, 52 weeks a year. And we've had great success with that so far. It's actually been busier than we had planned for it to be, which is a really encouraging sign. You bet. Nice way
0: to start off. Absolutely, smokes, look at the lineups. This is terrific. So what are you doing down in Vancouver this weekend? I know it's the wine festival. I know you're supposed to be here. But what exactly is Cedar Creek doing at the
1: festival itself? Uh, We are here mostly pouring. Um, Vancouver International Wine Festival is... uh, almost a week long nowadays. Yeah. It's a series of general sessions where people can come down to the con- uh, the convention center in Vancouver and go through the Grand Hall and taste for um, it's a three-hour period. And there's two a day, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Mm-hmm. So you got an afternoon session and an evening session. So I'm there behind the table at each one of those. And then I'm also taking part in uh, seminars and hosting dinners as well. So on Wednesday, I I took part in a seminar with Reese Pender, who's a a local MW, Master of Wine. And he was just talking about and tasting Canadian Pinot Noir. So we sat on a panel. We had about 100 people in the audience try the wines together, talk about what's going on in the Canadian industry. And then a winemaker's dinner that night at a place called Honey Salt at Park. Um, So we had about 100 people in the room. We do a wine-paired dinner, so we give the wines honey salt constructs the pairings and then i'm kind of like the mc of the night talk oh, okay. about the wines make a few jokes make everybody feel comfortable oh. um so yeah, that's that's kind of what my job is like over these few days at Winefest.
0: Interesting. Now all the, the team got together, all the wine presenters and the organizers got together for the big kickoff dinner, the Bacchanalia Galler dinner the other night. And uh, it's a fundraiser uh, because one of the components of the Vancouver Wine Festival is raising funds for Bard on the Beach. And they must have had a pretty nice evening. I know you weren't there because you were working on other things, but they raised 256000 bucks at a dinner with an auction and and all sorts of things. So what uh, wonderful charity spin-off locally for this
1: international event. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Shakespeare's a great cause, you know, so uh, I'm happy to see that number. And it's good to see the the culture of wine contributing to culture in a broader context and not just the food and wine thing. Sometimes it's nice to see our impact kind of radiate out from there.
0: How important are medals and honors in competitions to a winery like Cedar Creek, Taylor? If you win a gold at some wine festival in Spain, uh, it it gets its way onto the label or a stick-on of the bottle. Does that matter?
1: Yes. Certain shows are more important than others, and uh, certain placements are more important than others. I would suggest... The shows that actually rate wineries rather than individual wines are the most important. Oh, okay. So there's there's some competitions, um, like the one that Anthony Gizmondi is involved with, Wine Align, who do an individual wine rating. But then they also rank the wineries by how their wines have scored. And to be one of the top-ranked wineries is probably one of the most prestigious awards that a winery in Canada can win. So that, I think, is more important because it's cumulative. It's across all your wines. These guys are doing a really good job. They haven't just lucked out with one wine and one vintage. They're doing a great job across varieties, vineyards, and vintages. And Cedar Creek has uh, won these awards in the past? Cedar Creek's won these awards in the past. We won one of the two big Canadian ones in the past year, which is called Intervin. Um, And we have won the wine line twice in the past as well.
0: Wow. So, and so it goes and, and carries forward. You just, you're a young guy. You've got uh, just a, a, a fabulous career ahead of you, and you're working for a great company. I mean, life's pretty good, isn't it, Taylor? Life's great. Taylor Wynn. life is great. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. I know you've got to get back to the festival and do some more pouring. Any uh, final words? Uh, somebody listening to us right now heading down to the convention
1: center for their turn at the 2020 International Wine Festival. Tips? I just get out there, come down, support us, have a tasting, Um, come visit both the Canadian and the international wineries. If you're in for a kind of a more intimate, more educational um, session, then the afternoon is great. If you're more there to blow off some steam and maybe get a feel for what everybody's doing in a broader context, then the, the evening sessions are for you. So, but either way, it's great just to get the support to have people come down and to visit with us and try the wines. Interesting stuff. Well, make sure if you are going down to the Convention Center either
0: today or tomorrow to stop by the Cedar Creek Estate Winery and ask for that Taylor guy. I heard you on the radio yesterday and and say hi. Taylor Whalen. thanks so much for this. Uh, We wish you continued success. Thank you very much, Sterling. I appreciate you having me. It's our pleasure. And we're back after this. And once again, our thanks to Taylor Whalen, Chief Winemaker at the Okanagan's Cedar Creek Estate Winery, for a fascinating visit. What a fun guy. What a dedicated guy. Uh, Coming up in our next... Next hour, automotive journalist Jeremy Cato returns to talk e-cars, safe cars, and to take your calls as well. It's time now for Ask Andrew, which we've had to shelve for the last couple of weeks because Andrew is out of the country. And I'm going to just take this opportunity to ask Andrew about your vacation to Japan because we've just seen pictures of people in distress, of course, on ships and so on. For the last couple of weeks, you've been there for the last couple of weeks, Andrew. How's it like getting around? Fine.
2: Okay. Yeah. It,
0: it, it, All the tourism spots are open. There's no yeah, closures
2: uh, now. Now, right after I've left, everything decides to close down. Uh, I know that Disneyland uh, near Tokyo is closed down. Disney Sea is closed down near Tokyo. Right? They, that was um, yesterday when they yeah, closed it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple of like the big kind of big ticket tourists. You know, if you're going with your family, kind of things going around. But like I went to stuff like 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 whiskey distilleries in northern Japan. I just kind of like wandered around and like there's no real concern. Uh, I'd like to reiterate that wearing a mask doesn't really protect you Mm. from contracting COVID-19. Washing your hands does. Right. Like a mask will only really help you if you are coughing and if you think maybe you have and If that's the case, you should just be at home anyway. Sure. Okay. Right. But lots of people wearing masks
0: anyway. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. Like most, I want to say at least 75, 8% of people wearing masks anyway. And, you know, for, I kind of bought into it and I, you know, when I was on, when I was going around central Tokyo, like I wore a mask in like crowded places, you know, just in case. Sure. But no, finding my way around was no issue, but I would, you know, be wary if you have plans to go to like really crowded areas. Uh, like, big international areas, like, in Tokyo itself, Shinjuku and Ikebukuro and, like, Akihabara, like, the big, you know, tourist areas, you know, Exercise caution, but don't I I don't think you should be, you know, blowing, you know, you know, blowing whistles or or sounding alarm bells at any time yet. Interesting. It's good to have you back. We'll
0: do another Ask Andrew in an hour's time. Just before news, a couple of things here. Planning a night on the town tonight, perhaps heading down to the wine festival. Well, complete with an Evo ride home at the end? Well, guess what? They may not happen tonight, at least as of midnight. Anyway, Evo is shutting down its entire Vancouver operation from midnight tonight. ...until noon tomorrow. It's all about a new app... ...created to replace its frequently troublesome existing app... ...and to make room for more customers... ...as Car2Go is now done in Metro Vancouver. During the transition from the old app to the new one... ...overnight tonight into Sunday... ...Evo members may still be able to use their member card... ...to tap into an available vehicle. However, not all vehicles may show on the app... ...during that time. Evo users are urged to carry the card with them but also to consider making alternate plans until the tech changeover is complete by noon tomorrow. Now, you know, in case you haven't heard before, but we also have Uber and Lyft. Aha! So your plans tonight may not be in jeopardy. After all, it's just about having options and the wine festival would be happy to have you come by that is our first hour of vancouver consumer for a sunny saturday afternoon coming up after global news to three we welcome back veteran automotive journalist jeremy cato here to talk e-cars and safe cars and used cars and how to save money on a new car that's all coming right up next on cknw